Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Faith Moore, freelance author and editor. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the Baylor University-sponsored CLT is coming up on June 19th. Individuals who fill out an application interest form to Baylor can take the CLT for free. Application details can be found on our website, cltexam.com, and in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today, we have Faith Moore. Faith is a freelance author and journalist, uh, and just on Monday, uh, wrote an article in The Federalist that kind of blew up. Uh, instead of canceling Snow White, learn to read fairy tales. Faith, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Faith, I didn't know this when we, we reached out, but you are uh, from the well-known Claven family. Andrew Claven is your dad. Uh, your brother, Spencer, is kind of all the rage uh, these days over at Young Heretics, uh, one of the podcasts that I try to never miss. Uh, what was it like uh, growing up in the Claven household, and, and what are some of your first memories uh, around books and, and fairy tales in particular? It's funny. I, I get that question a lot, but when I was a kid, you know, my dad's books hadn't really taken off yet at first and my brother was a baby so I it wasn't really like growing up with celebrities or anything you know now because of the Andrew Clavin show mostly sometimes my dad will get recognized like on the street or in a restaurant or something and I get a really big kick out of that but when I was a kid um there wasn't a whole lot of that when I was around 10 or so my dad's books started to get more popular and I was so proud that my dad was a novelist I mean you know other kids parents had these jobs that nobody understood, but my dad told stories for a living. And I just thought that was so cool. And he, we would sit around the breakfast table and he would tell me the stories of the books that he was writing in an age appropriate way, of course. Um, but, you know, he would tell me these stories and I just loved that. I loved sitting there and hearing those things before anyone else got to read them. And I was just, I was just so proud to have a novelist for a dad. And then, you know, my brother, it was clear pretty early on, like very early on, that he was going to be an intellectual giant. And I'm really, wow. really proud of him now. Like, I'm amazingly proud of him. I, his podcast, Young Heretics, is fantastic. I also try not to miss an episode. But I was pretty obnoxious to him as a kid because I, I'm eight years older than him. And when, you know, your two-year-old brother is smarter than you, um, it's, it's a little bit much. But, um, you know, now we are great friends and I'm very proud of him. But you know, my parents have an amazingly loving marriage. I mean, their their relationship is it's amazing, and it's it's a fairy tale romance. And um, they were both of my parents. Both of our parents were always really supportive of whatever we wanted to do, whoever we were. And books were everywhere in our home. 
and you know, all the walls were lined with bookshelves. Everyone was reading something. We were always talking about what we were reading. And it actually came as a surprise to me later on to learn that that wasn't the way that most people's homes are, that they're not yeah. filled with books and everybody's not sitting around the dinner table talking about books and analyzing what they were reading. But I actually am not particularly intellectual. You know, I, as a kid, I really struggled sometimes to understand like the classic books and I did okay in school, but there were some subjects that really kind of stumped me. And I was reading kid books as a kid. I was reading Roald Dahl. We lived in England for a while. I read Enid Blyton. I don't know if you guys know who that is, but she was, I read all of her books. Um, but I, I ingested this kind of intellectual way of thinking and, and talking about literature. Um, and even though I didn't always understand what was going on, I, I understood what was happening. I understood that kind of dialogue. And when I was about nine, I, I saw Disney's Beauty and the Beast in the theater and something happened to me then. that story just grabbed me in a way that nothing else has. And I, I think I've just been reading that story, like all of the books that have, are based on that story. And there are a lot over and over and over again. And so now I get to talk about and analyze Disney movies the way that my family sits around analyzing Shakespeare. And I learned that at home. So I think that's pretty cool. So th this is amazing. I could pick your brain all day about this. I, I, I kind of just discovered this tradition myself in the past six or seven years. And it was amazing to me the way my own kiddos... Grimm's fairy tales, nothing new can compete with it. They were obsessed, you know, and these stories, some of them are a thousand years old uh, or more. And it's so fascinating to me that you kind of live and breathe this uh, as your work. So on just on, on Monday, uh, you wrote this article in the Federalist that, that kind of blew up on social. Uh, instead of canceling Snow White, learn to read the fairy tales. Um, so tell me about kind of the, the background here. But before we get into this, like give the audience uh, some context in terms of like, where do these fairy tales even come from? Uh, my understanding, again, is that some of them are a thousand years old uh, or more. Yeah, so the genre of fairy tales is kind of a really broad category. A lot of things fall into the topic fairy tales. And scholars are even kind of at odds with one another about what actually belongs in this category. So it's a little bit tricky sometimes to talk about how old they are and their origins and where they come from and all of those things. Um, but in the most basic sense, although it's also the sense that people nowadays are kind of confused about, but in the most basic sense, a fairy tale is kind of a short story with fantastical elements that tells a kind of allegorical tale about some kind of universal human experience. And so in that sense, yeah, these stories have been around for, you know, in some studies say many thousands of years. And that version of a fairy tale is kind of these oral traditional stories that are passed down from generation to generation, mothers telling their children these stories, usually to kind of teach them something about life. So either a lesson like don't talk to strangers or, you know, be careful what you wish for, that kind of thing, or sort of helping them to come to grips with the different parts of growing up. So there's, you know, stories about puberty or stories about um, falling in love, those kinds of things. But they're told in these kind of fantastical ways with these um, symbolic tropes that appear in each of the stories. And those kind of stories in the Western tradition do kind of come to us from the Brothers Grimm, because the Brothers Grimm were kind of, they, they went around Germany and other parts of Europe, and they collected the stories that people had been telling their children for generations. And so that's where we read them. But then 
There's also the category of fairy tales that are much more modern. Like if you think about Hans Christian Andersen, for example, I mean, he's writing in like the 1800s. He falls into the category of fairy tales. Beauty and the Beast was actually written in 1740. And that falls into the category of fairy tales. So it's, it's a really broad category. But and and these stories exist in other traditions, too. So we get the, the Western tradition of fairy tales often through the Brothers Grimm. But then, you know, all kinds of other cultures have these kinds of stories. And what's fascinating is that often the same stories will pop up from culture to culture. So, for example, almost every culture on Earth has a Cinderella story. Mm. So what that tells us is that there are certain things that are universal to the human experience that people are wanting to convey to each other and they're conveying them in these kind of symbolic allegorical ways um so it's a very broad category yes in some instances these stories have been around for thousands of years um and they tell us something about the human experience so I, I read the article several times myself and read it to the, the whole family just last night at dinner and my 12 year old Karis kept interrupting with these really funny comments of like, this is so ridiculous. Snow White would have remained dead forever. Um, one of the quotes, you quote a Japanese professor who, who said that uh, the prince's kiss is actually sexual assault on an unconscious person. Um, my question is, is how fringe is this or is this becoming more mainstream, uh, this, this attempt to cancel these foundational stories that, that have you know, created wonder in, in young people for centuries? Right. Well, it sounds like it should be really fringe, doesn't it? Like that thing that you just quoted from the Japanese professor, it sounds insane. So it's kind of a complicated answer because the broad notion, for example, that fairy tale princesses are sort of anti-feminist, that's been around for a long time. Um, you know, that they're just kind of these damsels in distress waiting around for a man. Um, that's pretty accepted at this point, even though it's not true. This notion that the fairy tale prince is some sort of sexual predator, that's a little bit newer, but it's been around, like you said, for a couple of years. You know, it's not just Japanese professors, but people like Kristen Bell are saying things like that, you know, the actress who voiced Anna in Frozen. So people are starting to say that too. So what's interesting, I call these people princess critics, um, the people that kind of are trying to take apart this fairy tale notion. Yeah. So what's interesting about these princess critics is that they are in the minority. Most people are just either not thinking about them or they're just, they remember them fondly from their childhood. But these people have the microphone because their ideas fit in with the cultural zeitgeist. So their articles and their videos and all of them, their content is getting picked up by major sources where people get their news or their entertainment. And so people are just kind of ingesting these ideas. People who ordinarily aren't sitting around thinking about this or trying to analyze fairy tales are ingesting this information and they're starting to think like, oh no, maybe princes actually are rapists and maybe princesses are really bad and I don't want them in my home uh, teaching my children things. So these ideas take root and they go unquestioned. Um, and then you get people who really love these stories still loving them, but then apologizing for loving them. So they'll say like, I know these fairy tales are really anti-feminist. I'm sorry, but I just really love Cinderella or whoever it is that they love. Um, the truth is that they're not anti-feminist. And actually a lot of them are very feminist if you know how to read them. And so the problem of course, 
um, you know, like I said in my article, and I also wrote a book about this that I I say this in too, is we've forgotten what a fairy tale actually is. We've forgotten what I was saying before about how they're actually symbolic and allegorical and that there are these tropes that kind of appear over and over and over again in each of these stories and that those things mean the same thing from story to story. So for example, you know, there are princesses, princes, witches, the woods, um, true love, true love's kiss, love at first sight, all of those things are symbolic and they represent other things. So you can't take them literally. You can't read them as if this was a real thing happening to a real people, to real people. So people now are sort of like Snow White we hate her. She's so passive. She accepts an apple from a crazy witch lady. Who would take that apple from that person? She eats it. She falls asleep. And then the whole main action of the story happens and while she's sleeping. And then this dude comes and kisses her in the end. Um, but all of those different things, the apple, the witch, all of those things are symbols that teach something. And believe it or not, many scholars, and also me, <laughs> think that Snow White is actually an allegory about puberty um because you you have this young girl um and the older menopausal stepmother is enraged when the little girl is suddenly the fairest and is attracting you know attention from a man um she's got to run away she runs into the woods the woods is this symbol of kind of inner turmoil where the character kind of goes they stop there they kind of try to untangle everything that's why there's a musical called into the woods and um, there she eats the apple of knowledge, falls asleep and wakes up to her romantic self. She wakes up to her self as an adult female person. Um, but even if you don't read it like that, it's ridiculous to think that these fairy tales where people talk to animals and witches cast spells and all these things should be taken literally because you can't take that literally. Um, so it's not a majority of people that have this idea, but people do believe this nonsense because these people are putting their ideas out there for people to consume. And then what happens is Disney and other children's organizations that create content for kids, they think, oh, this is what people want. This is the idea about these stories because you know, everyday people are kind of going, oh, wait, hold on. I don't want to teach my kids to kiss people randomly. So then, so then they start to create content that matches these ideas and it just kind of snowballs from there. So yeah, they are a minority, but no, they're not fringe is kind of the answer. So, so talk about this in the context of kind of broader cancel culture. And, you know, we, we've had these stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. And then suddenly we're the generation that like stops this beautiful passing down process. What does that say about our own cultural moment? And, and where does this cancel culture lead? Are you optimistic that the tide might turn at some point? Yeah, I actually am. I mean, I think the first part of your, to answer the first part of your question, I would say that the reason that this is happening is because we have become a much more literal culture. You know, we, we think about ourselves as sort of bodies with, needs that must be met and we don't really think of ourselves in this more spiritual way and so i think that it makes it makes sense to me that we are starting to make this mistake about these stories in a way that we weren't making a mistake about them in the past 
but I actually am kind of optimistic about cancel culture. What I found really interesting about the response, so this critique of the, the prince in Snow White came from a kind of random article in SFGate where they were just kind of reviewing a ride, a Snow White ride in, in Disney, the new ride in Disneyland, but they were then saying that this kiss was sexual assault or whatever. Um, but what was interesting is that the response online was largely in favor of Snow White and against these people that had made this claim. And a lot of people, I think, didn't really know why the prince wasn't a wasn't or Snow White wasn't a victim of sexual assault, but they they knew that it wasn't true. So they just kind of were like, this is ridiculous. How could you say this? Some people hit on the argument that I think you mentioned before that it's kind of just like performing CPR. Like if, if you found someone unconscious and dead on the floor and you said, may I please put my mouth on your mouth to resuscitate you, you're not going to get an answer. And so if you wait for consent, that person's going to die. Same thing with Snow White. She was unconscious. The only thing that could save her was a kiss from this particular guy. So if he hadn't kissed her, that would have been ridiculous. So a lot of people came up with that. That's still a really literal interpretation of the story, but it works. And I feel confident. I feel like it's a good sign that people are kind of trying to come up with these responses to this. In a broader sense, the reason that I am optimistic is because I think these accusations, these cancel culture accusations, are starting to get more and more and more ridiculous. So if you if you start, let's just take fairy tales for an example, since we're here, right? If you start with like, you know, fairy tale princesses lack agency. People go like, okay, like maybe that's true. I mean, it's not as true as you would think, but sure, okay. And people say like, yeah, that makes sense, okay. And then, then you start to say like, and also the princes are rapists. And then you're kind of like, whoa, hang on a minute. Soon these accusations start to get so insane that people start to are starting to say like, actually, hold on a second. I actually that one doesn't really make sense to me. And once you're there, once you're at that place where you're where you could say. I actually don't think that this person or this thing should be canceled because that what you're saying is crazy. I think <laughs> then you start to question it all. And maybe, just maybe, we could kind of undo this whole idea. So I am kind of optimistic. Love it. Um, Faith, final question for you here. Uh, we always end the Anchor podcast talking about books. Of course, you, you grew up talking about books, so this is comfortable territory for you. Um, I'm wondering if there maybe is one book, one text that has been most formative for you, maybe one that you come back, and maybe a fairy tale or maybe something else. So I think it is a fairy tale and something else. So like I was saying before, the story that has just grabbed me in, in, in my whole life, <laughs> that just sort of took over my life, is Beauty and the Beast, this story about a man whose raw manliness sort of took him over to the point where he became a beast. And then he meets a woman whose strength of character inspires him to channel those urges into the service of loving her. That's a story that just resonates with me for some reason. And the book that, that works off of that narrative that I love the most is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And that's a book that I just come back to over and over and over again. I just reread it and I'd always notice something new. And it's basically like, if you want to know what happens if Beauty and the Beast happened in real life, um, you should read that book. And if you want to know what happens if Beauty and the Beast plays out, except the Beast isn't really a great guy and, the, and Belle is not really worthy of him changing at all, you should re read Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which is also a fantastic book. So I would say anything that has that narrative will appeal to me. 
in all its many permutations and forms. But Jane Eyre is my absolute favorite book. And then, you know, just a shout out, I feel like Wilkie Collins doesn't get enough love. And the book, The Woman in White, actually changed my life because more from a, a writer's perspective, that book is so expertly crafted and mm -hmm. so well put together that I just learned so much from it about about writing. And I just, you know, he's he's an amazing author. I love his, all his books and he doesn't get enough love. So we say that one. And then yeah. of course, fairy tales. I, I got to tell you, maybe it's just kind of reflecting my own experience or, you know, being a guy, but I, I think I was impacted in the same way as, as a young kid, but, but you don't want to, as you're becoming like a teenage boy, be like, I'm really into, into fairy tales, or at least, you know, the, the football crowd I was kind of growing up in. Um, but then when I read Chesterton's Orthodoxy, it changed my perception of fairy tales and why they're so powerful and, and, you know, started kind of talking about them more and tweeting about them more. Um, has Chesterton's uh, take on fairy tales been, been formative to you, especially in Orthodoxy? Well, you know, I have to say that because I come to fairy tales from Disney, it's taken me a long time to read what other people have to say. And so I have dived in to Chesterton, um, but but only a little bit. I think I think that he he is often tweeted at me, um, not him tweeting at me, but other people tweet him at me. And I do I do appreciate what he has to say, but I think. I can't say that he influenced me growing up or, you know, in my, in my thinking, because I'm, I'm someone who didn't really go that route to learn about these things. So Faith, uh, I think people listening right now, uh, I think they want to keep listening uh, and hear more. <laughs> where, where can they, can they follow you? What, what is your handle on Twitter? And I think you have a book out as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. I'm Faith K. Moore on Twitter. Um, I also have a website, faithkmore.com, where you can find me and get in touch with me. Um, and I do, I have a book, it's called Saving Cinderella, What Feminists Get Wrong About Disney Princesses and How to Set It Right. Um, and it goes through all the different Disney princess movies and it talks about what these princess critics say and why they're wrong. So that's available on Amazon for anyone who wants to take a look. I, I am ordering that as soon as we're done recording, because that sounds right. Cool. <laughs> uh, well, again, we're here with uh, Faith Moore, uh, the article in the Federalist. Make sure you read that. We've attached it uh, in the in the show notes as well. The article is instead of canceling Snow White, learn to read fairy tales. Faith, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week.